Well, good morning again. Uh, I'm always thrilled when I get the opportunity to come and share a word with you, even if it means Justin's on vacation and he leaves the uh, the inmate to run the asylum a little bit. I'm excited uh, to get to step up and get to share with you just kind of a word that has been on my heart. It's funny, Justin asked me to do this uh, a couple months back and I kind of had this calling and sense to talk about Abraham. And then last week, Justin preaches about Abraham. And I'm like, I'm glad we didn't cross the streams here because uh, we could've, you could have stepped on top of what I wanted to say. Uh, but luckily, he just teed me up. So I'm really excited this morning. So if you have know anything about me or know of me, you know that I have two daughters, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, who I love very much. And one of the things I love to do as a dad is to read stories. And so the other thing you might know about me, if you've heard me preaching here, is I always like to have some kind of visual hook, right? Sometimes it might be making you wave red pieces of yarn in the air. Or sometimes it might be bringing a lightsaber onto stage. Uh, but today I thought it'd be really fun to just read you one of my favorite children's books. So climb up in my proverbial lap. I'm going to read you a book this morning, okay? And because this is a children's book and I'm all the way up here, I've helped you out. I've put it on the screen for you. So I'm gonna read you my favorite book. This book is called Dragons Love Tacos. Hey kid, did you know that dragons love tacos? They love beef tacos and chicken tacos. They love really big gigantic tacos and tiny little baby tacos as well. Why do dragons love tacos? Maybe it's the smell of the sizzling pan. Maybe it's the crunch of the crispy tortillas. Maybe it's a secret. Either way, if you want to make friends with dragons, tacos are key. Hey, dragon, why do you guys love tacos so much? But wait, as much as dragons love tacos, they hate spicy salsa even more. They hate spicy green salsa and spicy red salsa. They hate spicy chunky salsa and spicy smooth salsa. If the salsa is spicy at all, dragons can't stand it. Why do dragons hate spicy salsa? Well, just one drop of hot sauce makes a dragon's ears smoke. Just one single speck of hot pepper makes a dragon snort sparks. Spicy salsa gives dragon the tummy troubles. And when dragons get the tummy troubles, oh boy. If you want to make tacos for dragons, keep the toppings mild. Tomato, lettuce, cheese. These are all good options for tacos for dragons. Hey, dragon, how do you feel about spicy taco toppings? Dragons love parties. They like costume parties and pool parties. They like big giant parties with accordions and tiny little parties with charades. Why do dragons love parties? Maybe it's the conversation. Maybe it's the dancing. Maybe it's the comforting sound of a good friend's laughter. The only thing dragons love more than parties or tacos is taco parties. Taco parties are parties with lots of tacos. If you wanna have some dragons over for a taco party, you'll need buckets of tacos, pant loads of tacos. The best way to judge is to get a boat and fill the boat with tacos. That's about how many tacos dragons need for a taco party. After all, dragons love tacos. Hey dragon, are you excited for the big taco party? Just remember, dragons hate spicy salsa. So before you host your taco party with dragons, get rid of all the spicy salsa. In fact, bury the spicy salsa in the backyard so the dragons can't find it. The dragons love your taco party. They love the music, they love the decorations, they especially love 
the tacos. Congratulations. It's a good thing you got rid of all that spicy. Wait a second. What are those little green things in the salsa? You didn't read the fine print? Totally mild salsa. Now with spicy jalapeno peppers. Dragons, listen to me. Do not eat those tacos. Those little green specks in the salsa, they're jalapeno peppers, and they are super spicy. I know you love tacos, dragons, but you are not going to love these tacos. Do not let the dragons eat these tacos. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Too late. And the aftermath. Why would dragons help you rebuild your house? Maybe they're good Samaritans. Maybe they feel bad for wrecking it. Or maybe they're just in it for the taco breaks. Because after all, dragons love tacos. The end. <clears throat> so, I, as, as my friend Josh too said, I was coming into church and I heard something about dragons and tacos and I'm very curious. You may yourself find yourself very curious at this moment. Why did I read a story about dragons and tacos? Well, because I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about story as an idea. I read a book many years ago, not a children's book, a real adult book, thank you very much. I read a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years by a guy named Donald Miller. And it's a book that outside of the Bible has really shaped my spiritual life maybe more than any other book. And in this book, Donald Miller had written a book previously called Blue Like Jazz, and it was just a series of essays. It wasn't really any kind of narrative story. But a movie producer read that book and thought, I want to make a movie out of this. So he approached Don and said, Hi, hey, we want to make a movie, but this book obviously isn't really much of a story. So let's work on crafting a story around these essays. And so this A Million Miles in a Thousand Years is about Don discovering what story is and how that plays a, lot, a role in his spiritual development. And he, he has a definition for story in this book that I really love. And I'm going to put it on the screen for you. I've, it's hung with me forever. A story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. A character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. So why did I read Dragons Love Tacos? Well, because a children's story is like the basic version of a story, right? So in Dragons Love Tacos, there's a character, there's a boy who wants something. He wants to be friends with dragons because who doesn't? And he has to overcome conflict, right? What kind of conf conflict does he have? Well, he has to get tacos, he has to throw a party, he has to make sure there's no spicy salsa, then he makes a mistake and there is spicy salsa and his house burns down. That's kind of a lot of conflict. But he overcomes all of that and actually befriends these dragons in a way that's not exactly the way he had planned, right? Now the dragons are helping him rebuild this mess he's created. And so their friendship in a lot of ways is stronger and even more than he could have expected it to be. And that is what I think God tends to do with us, right? When we have something we want or something that God wants for us, it very rarely goes the way we hope it goes. But oftentimes it ends up a lot better. And so this morning, I wanna tell you the story of someone in scripture that if you've been around the church for any period of time, you, you likely have heard of, a guy named Abraham. And he's not gonna be Abraham when we start telling the story. He's gonna be Abram, but God's gonna change his name. So I'm gonna give you a big sweeping picture of Abraham before we get to our text this morning. You know, I, I've preached through the whole book of Acts. I'm not gonna preach through the whole book of Genesis, just probably like half of it. So buckle in, get ready. 
So last week, Justin started in Genesis 13. We're gonna back up just one chapter just to give you a pen, a, a marker in Abraham's life. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what is called the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And the promise he makes to him is, I'm going to make you a great nation. At this point in Genesis chapter 12, Abram is 75 years old. Now, I wanna make a point about this. Yes, Old Testament people lived a little bit longer than we do now, but 75 years old was still considered advanced in age, right? Abram probably thought his life was pretty much over, his, the usefulness of his life. But God said, this is just the beginning for you. I'm just gonna put a pin in that and let you chew on that for the rest of this time, okay? So just think about that. So 75, we get this covenant with Abraham in chapter 12. Next chapter, chapter 13, Justin preached a great sermon on this last week. If you didn't hear that, go back and check it out on YouTube or on the podcast feed. Um, I think you will, you will enjoy that about Abraham and Lot separating. Then in, in, cha in verse, uh, chapter 14, essentially what happens is a bunch of people in the area that Lot has gone to rise up and Abram has to come in and help defeat this uprising and rescue Lot. And then at the end of that chapter, Abram gets this blessing from this mysterious king, this guy named Melchizedek. And biblical scholars are of two minds about Melchizedek. Either one, he's just this very mysterious person we don't know a lot about, but he seems a lot like Jesus. Or two, he actually is Jesus, just in the Old Testament form, kind of disguised. He's Jesus before he's Jesus. So what happens in this is this king blesses Abraham. He breaks bread and drinks wine, right? Like, does that sound familiar? Abram gives him a tithe, right? There's, there's a lot here. There's a lot. That's an interesting story. I would encourage you uh, maybe to go back and check that out. So he gets this blessing from Melchizedek. And then in chapter 15, we see God come back to Abraham. This is several years later. He had made this promise to Abraham when he was 75. Several years have gone by. Abram's a little discouraged. And this is what we pick up in chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the, world, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look up to heaven and number the stars. And if you were able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he content, counted it to him as righteousness. So God is reaffirming this promise to Abram. He's saying, I told you I was gonna make you a great nation and maybe I was not specific enough. Maybe I was too vague and you're thinking, well, now it's gonna happen through this member of your household. But I'm telling you now, it's still happening. It's gonna be through your son. And in fact, your, your, your generations are gonna be so great that if you count the stars, if you can count them all, that's how many you're gonna have. 
in your lineage. And so we turn, we turn over just one chapter further in chapter 16. Abram is now 10 years out from that promise, that initial promise of God. He's now 85 years old, and he's feeling a little discouraged. And so he's thinking, I'm not getting any younger. My wife is not getting any younger. So maybe God said, I'm going to have a son. Maybe I can just take this into my own hands. So Sarai and Abram concoct this plan for Abram to have a child with Sarai's servant, Hagar. And they have a son named Ishmael. And so they take this into their own hand, and and now Abram is 86 years old, and he has a son. He's waited 11 years, and he's finally gotten what he feels like God has promised him. And so we turn to chapter 17, and God comes back again and reaffirms this promise to him. Look, I'm going to make your name great. I've told you this. And in fact, I I want you to believe this so much that I'm going to change your name, because names mean something. The name Abram means exalted father. And instead, God says, you're no longer going to be Abram. You're going to be Abraham, father of a multitude. I want to get this point through your stubborn head, Abraham. I need you to trust me. And in the back half of chapter 17, we get this. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to him, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? God says, Listen, you have tried to take control of this too much. I'm telling you what is about to happen. And what's Abraham's response? He laughs. And what's Sarah's response? We turn over one chapter further. What's Sarah's response? She laughs. They're laughing. It's hysterical. He's 99 years old at this point. By the time his son is born, he will be 100. He was made the promise when? At what age? 75. He will have his son at 100. 25 years. Raise your hand in this room if you've been married for 25 years or more. Okay? That's a long time right? It's a long time. 25 years is a long time to wait for something you were promised. And so in Genesis chapter 21, we see Isaac born. They name him Isaac. Why do they name him Isaac? What's Isaac mean? He laughs. It's a big joke. It's the punchline to this big joke. God promised Isaac and it took 25 years. And then we're going to pick up our text in chapter 22. This is our text for today. This is about 15 years after Isaac's birth. So again, now we're we're looking at 40 years from the point of the promise to this point. And here's what we see. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay, we're going to pause there. First thing I want to point out, the testing here came from who? From God, right? Sometimes God tests us, doesn't he? The testing isn't always of the enemy. This testing came from God. And he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Is this Abraham's only son? No. He has Ishmael, right? 
So why does he call him his only son? Because this is the, this is the answer to the promise. This is the punchline to the joke. This is the heir, the symbol of God's promise and the heir to Abraham. This is his only son. We pick it up in verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham, not only does he buy into this thing that God is telling him, he's pushing into this testing. It's not just like God asked me to do this, so I'm doing it. He's actually putting quite a bit of work into this. He's traveled for three days out of obedience to what God has asked him to do. And then he leaves these men, these two men he's brought with him with the donkey. Why does he do that? Well, one, donkeys need supervision. They can't just be left of their own accord. Um, But the other thing is, the reason I really think he leaves these two men here is Abraham knows what God has asked him to do. He has an expectation of what he is about to do. And he doesn't want to bring these two guys into that. He doesn't want to burden them with watching this man literally sacrifice his son. So he leaves them. And what does he say they're going to do? We're going to go and worship. Worship? Worship? This act is an act of worship? Doesn't that feel really strange? It would feel strange to me, but it puts you in the mindset of where Abraham is in his relationship with God at this point in his life. Let's continue on. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father? And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, they went, both of them together. I think we are, we are a week out from Palm Sunday and, and I couldn't help but read this passage this week and see the, the Abraham laid the wood onto Isaac, literally the the thing he was going to sacrifice him on, he made him carry it up the mountain. Just kind of a cruel, cruel joke. But man, doesn't that feel similar to something else we're about to run into? Jesus being carrying his own cross up the mountain, the instrument on which he is going to sacrifice himself, being made to carry that. And then I, I can't help but think, you're walking up this mountain with your son, and what's going through your mind? I think Abraham's thinking, wow. It's taken a really long time to get to this point. 40 years now, I've been waiting to feel some peace about this. And now God is putting me in this position. What am I gonna do? Why am I doing this? Why is he asking me to do this? Why me, God? Why me? Have you ever asked that? And Isaac, probably sitting here going, this is really weird. Something's not adding up here because I'm seeing the wood, seeing the fire, I'm seeing the knife. I'm thinking this, mm." Uh, and because he's a 15 year old and he's a teenager, teenagers have less less inhibitions than adults. He goes, "Uh, dad, quick question. I'm just wondering, 
do you have a plan here? Because I'm just noticing uh, what you have and what I have, and it feels like something here is missing. And Abraham just says, look, we're just going to trust that God has this worked out. And if worked out means I'm going to do what he's asked me to do, then that's what it means. I heard someone say this once because I, I think it's interesting in verse, in verse 6 and in verse 8, both end with, so they went, both of them together. They're on this trek, this really difficult thing, and they're pushing through it side by side. I once heard somebody tell me, if you want to go fast, you go alone, but if you want to go far, you go together. And in the context of us talking about story, I think that really makes sense, right? If I want to go quickly and achieve something, I can just leave everything else behind. I'm not being encumbered with someone else. But why does that, why does that not going far? Because the second I hit the conflict, I might not be able to deal with that by myself, right? The thing that pushes us through conflict is community and being shoulder to shoulder and having someone who's got their hand on your back when you can't take another step. So if you want to go far, you go together. And they went, both of them, together. Picking back up in verse nine, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. At this point, I got to think Isaac's going, I'm not too sure about this. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. See, in this moment, Abraham completely surrendered himself to God's will, to God's vision, to the story God wanted to write in his life. And he had to, in doing that, put his reason into captivity. He had to point, put all the things that like make logical sense in his head. He had to push them aside and go, look, this doesn't make any sense, but I'm trusting that this is what you've asked me to do and you haven't let me down up to this point. So what happens? Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold him, behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I want to point out a couple things in this last little, last little portion. This is what we call substitutionary atonement, right? The thing that Isaac was supposed to pay, there was a substitute that paid that, right? A ram. A ram whose horns were caught in what? A thicket. A ram who literally had a crown of thorns upon its head. We are turning the page into Easter. I read this story and I thought, you know, when they're walking up the mountain, Isaac says, why is there no lamb for us to sacrifice? And then what ultimately winds up being sacrificed? A ram. Is a ram and a lamb the same thing? No, they are not. So why is there a ram instead of a lamb? Because this story in Genesis, the first book, points, the ram with the crown of thorns points to the lamb with the crown of thorns that serves as the ultimate substitutionary atonement that Abraham was willing to offer up his only son and God did. Abraham was willing, but God did. Jesus was our substitute because God didn't withhold his son. And that message, that message that you can pull out of the first book of the Bible 
is the reason I'm not worried about anything going on at our church. Because you know what? The gospel is way bigger. The gospel is way bigger than, than denominational splits. It's way bigger than frustration. It's way bigger than certain programming. It's way bigger than who's working here and who's not, and who's our clergy and who's our staff and who's our lay leaders and who's in the congregation and what's our... None of that supersedes the gospel. It doesn't. So what's the takeaway besides that? That's the big takeaway. What's the takeaway from this story? God is a storyteller. And he starts this book at the very beginning. Genesis chapter one, God's creating everything that exists. And what does it say? It says, God says, let there be light. God says, let us separate the heavens from the earth. God says, let's create fish of the sea and birds of the air. God says, let us make man in our own image. God is literally telling his story in creating everything that exists. He enacts his plan through story. Character, who wants something, who overcomes conflict to get it. That's the story definition. And I've taken that definition broadly and I've shifted some pieces, some pieces that I think will help us to more digest it in our church context. And I'm just gonna run through those very quickly. First thing is vision. I think God gives each of us a vision individually and I think he gives us as a church a vision. And here's how God gives his vision. First off, he does it in three parts. First off, he tells us what, what he is going to do. God will start by telling us what he is going to do. With Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. That was not very specific. Because sometimes God gives you a direction and not a destination. In fact, most times I think he does that. Most times I think he just says, hey, we're going that way. Where are we going? Well, you don't get to know that yet. My favorite question, are we there yet? Well, you don't get to know that yet either. So first he tells us what, then he tells us how, how he is going to fulfill it. With Abraham, remember he takes him out a second time. And now he says, count the stars. You see that? I'm going to actually give you a son. So he tells him how, again, not as specific as Abraham may have expected. So he tells him what, then he tells him how, and then the third time he says when, God's timing. For Abraham, that took 25 years to get from the promise to the fulfillment of Isaac. And that goes right into number two. So number one is vision, number two is waiting. This is another part of everything we're gonna go through. We are often in a hurry and God is almost never in a hurry because he doesn't believe in instant gratification, believe it or not, he doesn't. And I will just tell you, I've been back here at the church now for about two years and it feels like since I've been here, this church has been in a season of waiting and we still are. And it's okay, it's been two, at least it's not been 25, right? Like, let's be excited about that. Because oftentimes when we're working on achieving the vision God has given us, God is really just working on us, right? Abraham's trying to work on the vision. He's like, well, God said he's gonna give me a son and you know, Sarah and I, we can't have a baby. So like, I'm, let me just go over here to Hagar and like, I'll take the plan into my thing. And in the meantime, God's working on Abraham's heart. He's stirring him, right? 40 years, vision, waiting. Number three, difficulty. If we want something and we wanna get that something, we're gonna have conflict. There's gonna be problems while we wait. Just because we know God's plan for us doesn't mean that everything is going to fall into place. I once heard somebody say that God's will equals opposition plus opportunity. 
And if you look through scripture, particularly if you look at Paul, if you look at really anybody that God's working through, opposition plus opportunity equals God's will. For Abraham, he had a lot of difficulty. He had separation from Lot. He had the battle of the the people who rose up and the rescue. He had the Hamar and Ishmael stuff. He had part that we skipped over this morning, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. Y'all know that story. Tons of conflict, tons of difficulty. Vision, waiting, difficulty. Number four, hopelessness. There's gonna be a moment and there are gonna be moments when we wanna quit. We feel like the vision is dead. And for Abraham, I imagine that's when Isaac is laying on the altar and he's got his knife in hand and he's like, God, this is what you promised me. This is what I've been working for. This has been 40 years to get here. And and I feel like the dream is dying. And here's the great news. God loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. He loves to get us, oh, I'm getting choked up thinking about it. He loves to get us right to the point of total abandonment before he comes with number five, which is fulfillment. The Lord provides. That's what they named the mountain. So why this story and why this sermon? I was reading this text um, and I realized something about Abraham that I think speaks to where we are as a church. In that moment, when Isaac is laid on the altar, Abraham was trusting God with two things. He was trusting him with his history with everything he had done, with all of those 40 years and everything before that had led him to this point with his son, his only son, the promise of God, every bit of history right there. And Isaac also, not only does he represent the history, he represents the legacy. He represents Abraham, everything he's dreaming for the future, everything God has told him is gonna happen, count the stars. He represents history and he represents legacy. And all of that is laid right there in the person of Isaac and he's willing to take the knife to it in obedience to God. We are a place with almost 200 years of history. And I hope we are a place with almost 200 years more of legacy. Are we willing to put that on the altar and trust God to do what he's gonna do? So I wanna finish this morning by giving you five really quick things. This is not gonna be long. But five things when I think about history and legacy and our church, and, and I, I just wanna say this, I'm not, I, I'm not a clergy person. I'm not like any kind of big deal here, but I, I feel like a burden when I get to stand up here and share to just speak my heart and speak what the spirit has laid on my heart. So this is not coming from anyone official. This is Chris Ashley's thoughts. I've, I've thought about five things that I think our church has been and five things I think we can be that are linked to those things, okay? So I wanna run through those five really quick. Number one, we have been a church that has been remarkably generous. It's been easy to remark about how generous we've been. We do a lot, but what would it look like if we were radically generous? What would it look like if, if that, when you read in the book of Acts where they like, they sold everything and they put everything together and they just gave as people needed. It wasn't like mine and theirs. It was just like, no, this is ours. This is our stuff. What would it look like to transition? And listen, maybe if I get asked to preach again, I didn't think I was gonna come after the tithe one. So maybe if I get asked to preach again, we can unpack some of these things. Uh, Number two, we've been a very missions-minded church. We support missions. We go on some mission trips. We have a missions weekend. We, again, we give lots of money to missions. But what would it look like if we were really kingdom focused? If it really was less about Buncombe Street and the, the things we do and things we support and more about like, we don't care if our name's on anything. Like we're just about the kingdom. 
Number three, we've been very program driven and I love our programs, y'all, I do. I'm a big believer in the stuff we do here, but they don't call it the Buncombe Street machine for nothing. We are very program driven, but what if we shifted from program driven to being about transformative community, to being about creating a life transformation in the, in the context of authentic community. And I think that happens in programs. I think it happens in, in worship, in, in programs, in Sunday schools, in small groups. I think it happens, but what if like that was our, that was what we were chasing after. And if the programs happen, they happen. If they don't, we don't really care. Number four. We have great leadership at this church. We've been a place that has been very dependent on staff and clergy and lay leadership. But what if we just pushed all that aside and said, look, we're just trusting the spirit. We're just gonna be dependent on the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit asks us to march our only son up a mountain and sacrifice him, it might not make sense, but maybe we just need to lean into it. And number five, We've been a church marked by incredible traditional and contemporary worship. And I'm not saying we get rid of those things. I don't think we will. But I read the book of Acts and I get to Acts 2.42 and that verse has always hung with me. They devoted, devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number every single day. I read a story this week uh, and I'm gonna finish with this where Uh, right across the street, right back here behind this building, they're about to build a bunch of condos, a ton of them. And I saw this story on Facebook and you know what happens on Facebook, right? People complain and people were complaining. We don't want new people here. Greenville's closed, stay away. Where's our small town gone? And I get it. There's parts of Greenville we're losing that that I love and that I have enjoyed. But you know what I saw when I read that article? Oh, I just thought, what an incredible opportunity for our church. People are going to be right across the street from us. They can walk here. How God is placing that here. He is doing that for us. We can take advantage of that. Oh, I don't know about y'all, but I just feel a burden for that. We're gonna have our prayer teams up and we've got the kneeling kneeling benches and I'm just gonna tell you, we need prayer, y'all, we do. Our church needs prayer. We're about to make this huge decision. And those of us on staff, I'm not, this is not a come and give me a hug because I need it. This is a, just an honest assessment, y'all. We are just tired. We're tired. This is exhausting. We're so excited for where we're going. So I'm gonna pray for us and and Craig and Liz are gonna come up and sing a little bit. And listen, y'all just come pray, just come pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this word. Thank you for, for the example of Abraham and the example that you ultimately carried out with your son. God, thank you for our church. I love this church. I love what you're doing through us. I love where we're going. I know you have a plan for us. I know you have a vision for us. And I am just praying that you help us. Hey, we wanna go far, so let's go together. Let's do this together. Bring us together with clarity, with love, and help us to be able to push through whatever roadblocks are gonna come up in front of us. 
because the plan you have is so much bigger. We pray all this in your name.